verses 14 through 21 through the end of chapter 3 today. We've, we've been in Ephesians, and as you can remember from chapter 1 and 2, we've been purchased by God, by the blood of Christ. We've been forgiven, accepted as His beloved. We've been adopted as His children forever. We are His possession. We're sealed with the Spirit. Both Jew and Gentile are brought together into one family, brought in by Him, through Him, into His family, protected by His amazing grace and His love. We're sustained in His divine care. These are all things that we have discovered through so far through the book of Ephesians. And today, we see that we are energized by divine power. And so I would like to call our attention. We are possessors. We, we possess, says Paul, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The great and almighty God of the universe has set His affection upon us. Take a second to think about that. The Creator of the universe has set His affection upon us. That's amazing. He drew us into His family. He poured out His riches, His inheritance on us. We are rich beyond all imagination. Now, our bank accounts may not display that. Maybe our car doesn't recognize that. But the resources that we have are limitless and we are more than conquerors. Sermon done. Let's go home. Ready? That's pretty good. Uh, four minutes of study. We're done. We're out of here. Mm -mm. In chapter 1, Paul has a prayer. We, we saw it. And as Pastor Justin so articulated to us, Paul prayed that we would understand all of that. This is, he's praying that we would understand. And he begins in chapter 1 to throw a bunch of doctrine at us. Reminding us. And then in chapter 3, we're going to see his prayer is now a prayer of application. So prayer in chapter 1 is a prayer of understanding. Then he teaches doctrine. And now as we close out chapter 3, he's praying a prayer of application. He's saying, okay, now that we know all of this, let's do it. And this is what we do. So if chapter 1 is a prayer of enlightenment, then chapter 3 is a prayer of enablement. And so we're going to see this beautiful prayer that he has. The prayer for knowledge in chapter 1 and understanding, and then a prayer of application. A prayer of action. If you remember in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says to the church in Philippi that there is a surpassing value in knowing Christ. Everything else, he called it to the Philippian church, is dung. You guys know what dung is? Horse manure. Poop. He says everything else isn't even good enough. Christ is all in all. It's that good. Christ is so good that everything else pales in comparison. There's, a, there's an author. He was a Holocaust survivor. He's actually the, the founder of what was called Logotherapy. He's an Australia, uh, Austrian neurologist. And he wrote a couple books. One book was called The Man's Search for Meaning. And the other book was titled The Doctor and the Soul. 
Now, when I took many, many years ago, I took a psychology class and had to read all of these things. But I remember sort of this aimless, heartless, useless mindset behind his writing. His name is Viktor Frankl. And he said this. He's pointing out that life, he, he's, he's not a believer, but he's actually pointing out that life is meaningless. This is heartbreaking. Listen to what he says. In any city, Sunday is the saddest day of the week. It is on Sunday that the tempo of the working week is suspended. And the poverty of meaning of everyday life is exposed. The emphasis on a fast tempo in the personal life is reminiscent of a clinical picture of an unproductive mania. He continues and he says, the yield of all of this to-do is zero. We get the impression that these people know no goal in life and are running the course of life at the highest possible speed so that they will not notice how aimless it is. They are at the same time trying to run away from themselves, only doing it in vain. And on Sunday, when the frantic pace of this 24-hour-a-day life aimlessly and meaninglessly comes to a halt for just a pause, this is life outside of Christ. Now, that's a stark contrast. What I just read to you, that's a stark contrast to what we feel on Sunday morning. Sunday is this time that we gather together and we get to see our family members and we get to hear the Word of God and we get to renew our purpose in life. We get to be refreshed in the Word of God. We come together in a central place and the meaning and the aim and the goal is not that we would just get back out there and continue the rat race, but that we would gather in a place like this and celebrate the meaning. What it means that Christ has died for our sin. The life-giving blood of Christ. Christ has given us everything we need. The truth is, in our own personal life, at this very moment, in my own personal life, I struggle with this. This rat race that we live in and we work ourselves to the bone. I'm transitioning from the life of a full-time pastor to the life of what my son says, now you have a real job. And going from a full-time vocational pastor to a, a lay elder and a, and a, a working every day outside the house kind of guy. And going in and working what we would consider a mundane job. But as I battle in this, even in my personal walk, as I battle with this, I see among, um, open to me fields of ministry that were, were maybe not even present to me as a full-time pastor. And if you have in your life right now maybe unsolvable dilemmas, things that you can't cope with, anxieties that you can't seem to deliver yourself from, 
It isn't because you haven't found the right formula or you haven't read the right book or gone to the right seminar. Perhaps you haven't yet learned how to tap into the resources that already exist inside of you, that are already present at the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is a ministry opportunity all around us. I've heard people say, I don't feel like I'm doing enough for God or I'm not doing anything. I've said this myself. Preacher, preach to thyself. When we have houses full of kids and businesses full of employees and co-workers, neighborhoods full of neighbors and schools full of fellow students and fellow teachers and fellow parents, there are ministry opportunities all around us and the power to be effective in those places already exists in us. And so today, enough of that intro, Today, this is what Paul's heart is for the church. Because remember, he's getting ready to shift gears from doctrine to application. And so he's, he has this prayer that he closes out chapter 3 with. So let's look at the heart of this prayer. Let's look at the heart of what he's saying here. If you'll look, go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. And I'll read through the end. This is Paul's prayer for the church as they continue through. He's only halfway through his letter and he stops and prays again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's saying, hey, here I am, I'm praying for you. This is why I'm praying and here's my prayer. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, now he's addressing that it's a church thing, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Obviously, this is a really rich and powerful section of Scripture, and, and I'm going to do my best to get through it. Man, what a prayer. What a, what, what a heart that he has for these people. And you know, he's praying for us, too. He's, he mentions from generation to generation to generation. He's not just limiting this prayer to Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. The goal of the prayer is that we might experience verse 20. Go back and look at your text. The whole goal of this prayer is that we will experience verse 20. And we might come to a place where the power of God within us is doing things that are beyond our imagination. We begin to blow our own minds. We can't believe what's happening. How is this even me? He prays here that a series of great truths, great spiritual realities, will take place in our lives that will cause us to overflow with the power of God. And I think he has some things 
particularly in order. And we're going to see that today. We see what I see in here is five sort of sequential, progressive principles. And if we're ever going to get to 20, remember I said verse 20 is the goal of the prayer. If we're ever going to get to verse 20, and, and I've, I've, it's always fascinated me, verse 20. How in the world could I ever get to a place where the Lord would do through me things that I couldn't even imagine? That, that little passage of Scripture has always haunted me almost. I spent most of my Christian life stumbling and bumbling around and not even getting close to what I could ask or think. I was always waiting to do better. I was always wanting to see more power from God. But I wanted it on my own terms. I wanted to be able to hold on to certain things that I wanted to hold on to. And God had revealed to me those were things that were holding up the power of God in my life. And it seemed to me that I wasn't only not exceeding my own desires, but I wasn't even coming close to reaching the full potential that God had. So this is precisely the point where God wants us to be entirely dependent on Him. He doesn't want us operating in our own power. Our own power ends poorly. So in order to find the reality of verse 20, we're going to start in verse 16. So if you look, he sort of sets the prayer up in verses 13 and 14. He says, don't lose heart in verse 13. He says, and for this reason, he says in verse 14, Paul knows that even Christians tremble and shake and get anxious and they're burdened and they're concerned and they can't resolve their problems on their own and, 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 and they have this overwhelming desire to control their own environment. It's called the flesh. And life can be really hard. Paul's not oblivious to that. Not even in his day. And he's saying, look, I don't want you to be the kind of people that lose heart because of even my trouble. He says, you know, don't lose heart because, of, because I'm in prison. Don't look at the circumstance. That's not what I'm wanting you to lose. Don't lose heart over that. For this reason, I'm going to pray for you. Rather than being weak and, and disheartened, you're going to be powerful people. Now, when I say the word power, our depravity leaks out. When I say the word power, the majority of us think, power, I'm over somebody. I have the power to do this. I have the power. Our own sin nature comes out when we say words like power. Because that's not the power that, that we're talking about here. And so he bows his head, he falls to his knees before the Father, and he asks them. And, and so if you're taking notes and you want to keep up with these five things that we see progressively in this passage, the first thing is a strong inner being. That's the first step. We are starting to transition in this book. We're transitioning into application. Like I said earlier, one through three talks about what Christ, what we have in Christ. It's more doctrine heavy. Chapters four through six get into application. And, and so this is sort of like, like, this verse right here, this first step, this inner being, this is sort of the ignition. This is, this is, you've already been to the dealership. They've shown you all the options on the car. You've read the owner's manual. You are 
fully aware of the capabilities of this bad boy. But if you can't figure out how to start it, that car is useless. So this is really the ignition switch that starts us off. The roadmap is laid out, but if we can't start the car, then the map is useless and so is the car. So it doesn't do any good to own it if you don't know how to drive it and how to start it. So look at verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. In your inner being. He says, I'm praying that you would have a strong inner man. It's so important because the pressures and the distresses and the troubles and the trials of life can tear at and beat at the inner man and devastate us. It can steal our joy. It already beats the outer shell. Life, uh, life is, is hard on the, the outer shell. He's saying you need a strong inner person. You need a strong inner man. Even Christians demonstrate this inability to cope with life and all of its difficulties. The longer you live, the more painful it becomes. Physically and spiritually. It's a long chronicle of pain. And there are weaknesses that we have that need to be strengthened. And a weak inner, inner man, a weak soul, will result in doubt and fear and anxieties. Grumblings. The root of bitterness takes place. Passivity. A weaker inner man leads to frustration. Mental strains, physical strains, emotional strains. So the inner man is the, is, is the eternal part of us. It is the, the spirit, the soul. Paul says to the church in Corinth, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, he says the same thing he's saying to the Ephesians. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Beyond all comparison. In other words, he says, the outside is getting worse, but the inside is getting better. You can die alive. We will die alive. Our outer shell will die, but we will be alive. We will transition from this world into the presence of God. And so now, this is one way that we experience Christian growth. And Paul throws this on the front end of the prayer because he's saying, hey, if your inner man isn't strong... You need to have that inner man in better condition. Because it does affect the outer. He says, hey, we have a culture that's concerned with the outer man. You ever walked into a department store and saw the section on inner man? Everything's about clothing and the outside appearance of things. So in contrast to the perishing outer man, the Christian is increased daily in the inner man. 
Because that is what is truly eternal. The external is temperate. It's temporal. Paul's saying, I want your involuntary responses. This is, this is, this is what I, I, I'm looking for. These involuntary responses to be virtuous and holy. Instead of snapping all the time, I want you to snap into holiness. I want you to delight in the law of God and, and, and as they manifest themselves. Your speech and your behavior change because your inner man is strengthened day by day. He says, I want the inner man to be firm enough to combat the world and to deal with that outer shell that is the greatest enemy of our own. That's why he says in Galatians that the flesh and the spirit are in constant conflict with one another. Because when you yield power, your power, which is useless, over to the great power, the Holy Spirit, which is all-powerful and life-giving, you find spiritual strength. That leads to this second step in the prayer and in this simple progression that we're seeing. When you have a strong inner man, verse 17 says, so that it finishes out. Here it is. Strong inner man. Stop there. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's our second step. Christ at home in your heart. Now, there would, there, would, there would be some debate. There would be some maybe argumentative. I think we're talking about salvation and we're talking about something else because we have to sort of look at this, the word here that he uses for dwell. Now, I, I read this in, in John MacArthur's um, commentary on this passage of Scripture. So I'm not some amazing Bible scholar who's dug myself into the deep Greek. I got this out of a commentary. Okay, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. But it really jumped off the pages of that commentary to me. He, he uses the word katoikia. Say it with me. Kat-toi-kia. It's like cat-toy and your mama's van, the kia. Okay? Kat-toi-kia. Say it with me, kids. Kat-toi-kia. Somebody say it with me. Katoikia, you did a good job on that, James. You rocked that. You should study Greek. All right. This word not only means to dwell, okay? This is why this English translation is difficult. Because tokia means to dwell in a house. But kato means to settle in comfortably. This is really interesting. What basically we're saying is, is Jesus at home in your heart? It's not a question of whether he's there. Paul is speaking to a predominantly Christian or, uh, uh, audience, and he already is saying, hey, Jesus lives in you by faith, but is he comfortable there? I was telling my wife at dinner last night, I love to come home. Home is a place of refuge. It's a place that I want to be all the time. It's not a question of whether Christ is in your life. It's a question of whether He's comfortable there. Whether or not He's at home there. Because as we grow, is Christ comfortable at home? It's kind of like this. I love coming home because I'm in the race all day long. I'm on the battlefield all day. Not everybody 
comes home to a house that isn't in turmoil. Some people don't want to come home because it's not home, it's just a house. And there's constant fighting and violence and danger. They don't feel at home. They feel scared and they feel unnerved. And I thank you for that, Kelly, for providing that for me. I don't have to fight. It's comfortable. I have to pick up some toys and, you know, clean up a little bit. There's always that. That's called life. But I don't come home to an episode of hoarders and, and, and everybody's not fighting and raging and I'm not like, oh man, what else can I do before I go home? Paul is saying, hey, when Jesus is at home, if we can get a strong inner man and we can rely on the Holy Spirit to constantly be reminding us of our sin and purging us of our sin. When Jesus is at home, He can actually come in and He doesn't have to fight us every day over our sin and over our ignorance and over our other things. Jesus is now dwelling in us and the battle becomes one to understand His love. Is Jesus comfortable in your heart? Is he at home there? Or is there always something that he's got to fuss about and constantly be, be fighting you over? Because that leads us to number three, and that is the transformation of love. Look at verses 17 through 19. He says, So that Christ may katoikia in your hearts through faith. He'll be comfortable at home in your heart that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When Christ settles down and is at home in your life, He transforms you into love. You become more loving. Because He is love. That's what He means when He says being rooted and grounded in love. If we have a strong inner man and we have a home that Jesus is more comfortable in, and there's not that fight and that battle and that struggle, He can actually teach us to love. The battle lands where it belongs, and that is in the world. He means that love is not peripheral. It's not something that's on the circumference. It matters. It's not hit or miss. Our love is not the world's love. We see signs all the time. Love is love. I disagree. God is love. Because Scripture says it, and God has proved it. Jesus said that all men will know that you are His disciples. By what? By this. That you have what? Love for one another. The greatest way to display your own faith in Christ is the love you have for one another. And we can't build that love when we're constantly battling the Holy Spirit, Jesus, in our home. Love is the essential root and grounding. So when Christ dominates your life, the characteristic that is on display will be our love. You'll love in a way that He loved. 
and it will blow your mind. You'll forgive people that constantly hurt you. And you'll, you'll go to bed at night wondering why in the world did you even forgive them? I was sharing a little quick story with, with some guys before church. I have a fellow believer at my job and this week he was frustrated about something. He was kind of rattling off about it. And he said, let me just tell you something. This would have been a lot worse five years ago when I didn't know Jesus. <laughs> I was so happy for him. I was like, man, this is great to hear you say that. That's called progress, brother. That's awesome. <coughs> Excuse me. And I shared with him some of the studying I'd been doing this week about a strong inner man and, 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 and how Jesus needs to be at home in our heart and, and that produces this love. And he was just like, that's, it. that's exactly what's happening, man. That's exactly what's going on right here. Like I'm, doing, I, I'm treating people different. People that I used to hate, man, I'm like asking them over for dinner. And he couldn't even understand why he was doing it. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, beyond what you can even ask or think, we're going to grow in such a way that it's going to blow our own minds. So when Jesus can settle down, be at home in our hearts, he, there's not a ton of cleaning to do. There's not a bunch of chastening. There's not a bunch of confrontation. He can just be at home there and the love of Christ will consume us. He'll fill our life at every point with love. Verse 18 says you'll, you'll comprehend it. You'll not, only, you'll not only know it, but you'll actually begin to comprehend it. You'll understand it. We'll actually... Now, understand, we're going to see this when we get to the fullness of God portion. We don't become God. That's heresy. We don't become God. But we certainly become like Him. It's like jazz. Somebody asked Louis Armstrong one time. Somebody wasn't a big jazz fan. Somebody asked Louis Armstrong one time. They said, man, can you explain jazz to me? And Louis Armstrong said, man, if I got to explain it to you, you ain't got it. That's kind of uh, almost how I, 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 I feel like the Lord is saying. If I got to explain it to you, you ain't got it. But if you got it, you can't even explain it. It's, it's, it's bewildering to us, the changes that take place in our life. Sometimes when I try and share my testimony with people, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start. Because there's been so much transformation that takes place in your life when you grow in the Lord. So when Christ settles down, He's at home in our life, He dominates us with love, we have this comprehension of His love. We, get, we start to understand a little bit. The word comprehend there, it actually means in the Greek to seize or to apprehend. That's how much we understand we're consumed by the love of God. It seizes us. It apprehends us. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's only when God is settled down in our life and He's shedding His love into every corner, this moves us to our fourth point. We see it in the progression as you read the prayer. <coughs> when this is true, we come to the next result. Verse 19. 
that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now remember, I said, this does not mean that we become God. If you think back, that's actually the original sin. That's the fall, is that we wanted to be our own God. So we don't actually become God. What it says there is we're filled up to the fullness of God. It doesn't mean that you become God. It simply means that you get the essence of God. Who God is. We begin to understand why He loves His enemy and would uh, free them from their sin and adopt them into His family. We begin to love people differently and we don't even quite understand why we're doing it. But then we just do it because we're actually comprehending that that is the love of God. Love isn't based on the behavior of the other person. We don't stop loving someone if we truly love them. <coughs> the worldly term, I fell out of love with them, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. So now we're getting down to why we can be powerful. Filled with all the fullness of God. Again, understand, if I go down to the Atlantic Ocean and I scoop a glass full of the Atlantic Ocean up, that's not the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean is vast and wide and full of other things. And, but I have the essence of the Atlantic Ocean. We see here, it's almost the form of a doxology here as we come to this fourth point, And that is being filled with the fullness of God. It's a form of a doxology almost. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I can actually see Paul. He, he tells us in the beginning of the prayer that he's taking a knee before God. He's down on his knee and he's, he's praying and, he, and he's praying for us. And then he says, and now. And I can almost see him coming up. Here's his doxology. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. It's like he's saying, now with all of that in place, a strong inner man, a Christ who is settled in and at home, a transformed heart that is understanding the love of God, now we're going to cut on the power. And now He's able to work in us. Remember, Paul is preparing us now for this second half of Ephesians where it's action steps. So he's building this up and saying, this is what takes place. And now we're going to go operate in this power. You can build an empire on a clever idea. You can build a business on a clever idea. But the path to spiritual power goes right through Ephesians chapter 3. Tremendous power is available for every issue of life. And that's why God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power. Remember 2 Timothy? He tells Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
That right there speaks to those three things we just talked about. A strong inner man. The love of God. Self-control to combat the, the flesh and the world. I think Isaiah saw this wonderfully and he put it in, in, in beautiful terms. A passage familiar to most of us. Isaiah chapter 40. And if you'll read with me, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. I'm not even sure Paul isn't playing off of some of this in his doxology. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives what? Power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength. Even youths will faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Remember he said the inner man gets refreshed daily. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Such a faithless thing for us to wander around in this Christian experience thinking that we have no power to change anything. You personally don't. But we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of us. We have a power in us that is at our disposal. Not for our own gain, but for what? This leads us to our fifth and final point. What is the purpose of all of that? What is the purpose of all of that? But Why would God do this? Why would He want me to be so powerful? The answer is verse 21. Unto Him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Forever and ever, let it be. Amen. In order that He might display His glory through the church. When the world looks at the church, what do they see? Do they see power? Probably not. They see weakness. So then what do they think of our God? If we are a powerless church, then we must have a what? Powerless God. Our lack of power poorly reflects on our Father. And so, we are a people who need His power and have access to His power. And there are people that see His power at work in His people. And they see a powerful God and they come to a saving knowledge of Him. God wants the glory. Not only does He want it, He deserves it. He is perfect and He is almighty and He is all-powerful and worthy of our praise. We sing song after song about how worthy He is of our praise. You see, our evangelism is not tied up in our cleverness. It's not tied up in our style. It's connected to a power that is immovable and cannot be defeated. I spoke to a man the other day and he was sharing with me that he used to be a pagan. He used to be a motorcycle gang guy. 
And he was sharing with me. He said in 1969, he went to a, gym, uh, a Billy Graham revival with a bunch of pagans. And they were there for the very purpose of mocking everyone that was going to the revival. And he said the way the people responded to him moved him. They were mean. He said that we were dumping beer cans out. and We were, we were ugly. And the people going into that place were filled with joy. And they walked through our misery and they left with their joy intact. That was the exact words he used. They walked through our misery with their joy intact. He said, so I traveled 350 miles to the next Billy Graham revival. No pagan clothing on. Put my hair in a ponytail. Wore a collared shirt. So I didn't blend in with any of uh, I just wanted to go and hear what, why were these people walking through my misery with their joy intact? And he came to Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit. These people, he'll probably never know their name this side of glory. But they were powerful. They were operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this man came to Christ and his life changed. So my prayer for you and for me is that we will be to the glory of God. That we will not be tied up in our styles. We will not be tied up in our, in our, in our desires. But we will give praise and honor and glory to Him. That we will walk through the misery that is outside that door with our joy intact. This is so powerful of a closing prayer. I can almost see Paul jumping up to his feet. Because remember, here it is. Here's his, here's his doxology. He, he's, he's jumping up now to him who is able. And he says, he goes right into chapter 4. Look over at chapter 4 real quick. We'll get a sneak peek at next week. Paul jumps up off of his feet. And this is what he says. He starts right in to chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. This is Paul's definition of the power that we receive from God. He doesn't say go out and smash them and beat them over the head. It has nothing to do with that. This is Paul's definition of the power that he just described to us, that he just said if we have a strong inner being and Jesus is at home in our heart and, and, and we're exhumed with the love of God and we have the fullness of God operating within us, this is what power looks like. This is how you walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity, peace. May we be a church that operates in such a power. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, for the truth of Your Word, for the beauty of, of the conviction that takes place in my own heart every time I open Your Word. Lord, may my heart be a place that You are comfortable in. That You come and 
You do your work and you sweep out the corners and you remind me of my sin. And, and we don't constantly battle one another, Lord, but we, we battle the true enemy together in your love and in your patience and in your humility and in your peace. And Lord, may we walk through the misery of this world with our joy intact. And I love you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.